Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Welcome to a history of Europe, key battles, the siege of Jerusalem of 1099, or the First Crusade. On the 27th of November, 1095, a large crowd of churchmen assembled at the Council of Clement for a much-anticipated speech by their leader, Pope Urban II. The event did not disappoint. Urban's call to arms to assist their Christian brethren in the Holy Land was met by great applause. On the spot, several volunteers eagerly stepped forward to pledge their support, and the enthusiasm for crusade soon spread like wildfire throughout Western Europe. This historic sermon and a series of others made shortly after were more successful than Urban could have imagined. Tens of thousands took up the challenge and participated in a remarkable campaign which became known to history as the First Crusade. To understand the reason for such a response, it is important to know about certain events occurring around Europe in the years before. So today I will describe the main events and personalities that helped shape the lead-up to this event. In previous podcasts, I described how a reform movement, started by Pope Leo IX, transformed the papacy from a decadent plaything of the nobility of Rome and emperors in Germany into an institution more in tune with Christian ethics, and one more independent from outside interference. The popes allied with a new warrior class, the Normans, who had recently built a powerful new duchy in northern France, and were fast spreading their influence by force of arms around Europe. The Normans were not always reliable allies, but they were preferable to the alternatives. The emperors in Germany or Constantinople, who were rivals of the papacy to the inheritance of ancient Rome. It was the Byzantine emperor, Alexius, who triggered the Crusades by making a request for armed assistance. His empire had recently lost control of most of Asia Minor to the Muslim Turks, especially after the Battle of Manzikert in 1071, in which his predecessor, Romanus IV, had been captured by the enemy, triggering a civil war and economic disaster. In the same year, a force of Normans led by Robert Guiscard captured Palermo, the Arab capital of Sicily, in some ways a foretaste of the Crusades. The year after, Robert returned to mainland Italy, leaving his brother Roger to complete the takeover of the island. Robert was now Duke of Sicily, in fact as well as in name. 
it was time to restore order in the lands he had conquered in southern Italy, and then look for the next challenge. All rebels in Italy were swiftly dealt with within a year. Then, in April 1073, a new pope was elected in Rome, who would turn out to be one of the most remarkable churchmen in history, Gregory Seventh. Born Hildebrand of Savannah, Gregory had already wielded effective power in the Curia for some twenty years, since the passing away of Leo IX. In his role as Archdeacon of the Roman Church, he was the chief architect of the reform programme, including a ruling which gave cardinals exclusive rights to elect a new pope. The story goes that the crowd at his predecessor's funeral carried Hildebrand to the Church of St Peter, where they exultantly acclaimed him Pope. The canonical election that followed was a mere formality. Unlike most popes of the time, Gregory was of low birth, a Tuscan peasant's son and Lombard by race. He was short and swarthy, with a pronounced paunch and a voice so weak, even making allowance for his heavy regional accent, his Roman colleagues often found it difficult to understand what he said. Yet as described by John Julius Norwich, there was in his character something so compelling that he almost invariably dominated any group of which he was a member. He was single-minded of purpose, determined to see the subjection of all Christendom from the emperors down to the authority of the church, and the subjection of all men of the church to the pope. In the autumn of 1073, Gregory received a secret and urgent appeal from the new Byzantine emperor, Michael VII. Constantinople desperately needed military aid to fend off the Turks from overrunning Asia Minor. In spite of the disagreements between East and West, the Pope accepted. He considered himself responsible for the entire Christian world, and besides, this was a great opportunity to bring the Byzantines possibly back into the fold. But he could not possibly launch an effective crusade in the east while under threat at home from Robert Guiscard. So he summoned all his Italian allies to convene in Benevento. As Leo had done twenty years before, Gregory put together an assembled army large enough to face off the Normans and put them back in their place. It was Guiscard's turn to feel alarm. At Civitate, he and his brothers had successfully routed a papal army, but in those days the Normans were united. Since then they had broken up into different groups, each of their own interests. He wrote to Gregory, insisting his conscience was clear. He had never given the Pope cause for offence or disobeyed him in any way, and would be honoured to present himself before his holiness. And so, accompanied by a heavy escort, he rode to Benevento. However, just as Gregory's army was ready for the assault, dissension broke out in its ranks. Brought face to face, his allies crawled over their own differences, and the army became split. For the Pope, this was a disaster, and as for his relations with Guiscard, an intense personal humiliation. The army in which he had put his trust had disintegrated before it had taken one step into battle. 
Worst of all, the vicar of Christ on earth had been made to look a fool. All he could achieve was to excommunicate Giscard, and all thoughts of a crusade dissipated. Gregory's other main concern was Henry IV in Germany. Elected king in 1056 at the age of six, Henry was now old enough to rule in his own right. But he still faced the constant threat of revolt by the German princes, a fact exploited by the papacy. In 1075, the king felt confident enough to appoint bishops within his lands, including to the See of Milan, in contravention of the Pope's claims to overall authority in this matter. Gregory's response was to excommunicate Henry. The German princes were thus provided with the excuse they were looking for to rebel and attempt to overthrow the king. Realising he had overplayed his hand, Henry decided to meet with the Pope and plead forgiveness. It was October, and winter fast approaching, but there was one alpine pass still unblocked by snow, and Henry took this route. Crossing it with his wife and baby son, he hastened through Lombardy and found the Pope at the fortress of Canossa. Henry waited outside as a humble penitent, barefoot and dressed in sackcloth. Gregory, normally a man of iron certitude, did not know what to do. If he were to absolve the king, all the confidence the German princes had placed in him would be betrayed. He refused to show mercy, however, and he would be betraying his Christian duty. After three days, he gave in and lifted the excommunication in exchange for assurances the king accepted papal authority. At first glance, it may appear as a victory for the papacy, but in actual fact, Gregory's triumph was empty and ephemeral, and Henry knew it. His seeking of pardon from the Pope had nothing to do with repentance. It was a cold-blooded political manoeuvre, which was necessary to secure his crown, and he had no intention of keeping his promises after they had served their purpose. In the year 1080, Gregory laid a second excommunication on Henry. But now the German king was secure within his lands, he could safely ignore this one, and even planned a journey into Italy to depose the Pope. Gregory's only option was to make up with Robert Guiscard, which he did in June of that year, in exchange for recognising Guiscard's conquests. Only four days previous, Henry had presided over a great council of German and Lombard bishops, in which Gregory was announced deposed, and the Archbishop of Ravenna proclaimed Pope in his stead. Giscard, having consolidated control over southern Italy, was planning his next campaign, this time across the Adriatic into Byzantine-controlled Illyria. The justification for aggression was twofold. Firstly, Illyria had become a gathering place of Italian exiles who had opposed Giscard. Secondly, the daughter of Giscard had early married the daughter of Emperor Michael VII. When Michael was deposed, worries for the safety of his daughter became a convenient pretext for war. Over the winter and into the new year of 1081, Giscard gathered forces together for the invasion. 
Meanwhile, in Constantinople, a new emperor, the 33-year-old Alexius, emerged successful from a civil war and was crowned on Easter Day. One of his first acts was to send Giscard's daughter back west to try and avoid conflict with the Norman, but it was too late to persuade a corning off of the attack. In the second half of May 1081, a force of 1,300 Normans, including Giscard's eldest son, Bohemond, plus thousands of assorted Allied foot soldiers, sailed to Illyria. At first, their attempt to lay siege to the regional capital of Dyrrachium failed. Alexius himself, already an experienced commander, led the Byzantine army, which included the Imperial Varingian bodyguard. At this time, it consisted largely of Englishmen, that is, Anglo-Saxons, who had left their country after Hastings and taken service with Byzantium. Many of them had been waiting 15 years for the chance of avenging themselves on the detested Normans, and they attacked with all the strength and vigour of which they were capable. Fighting on foot, swinging their huge two-handed axes into horses and riders alike, they struck terror into their enemies, few of whom had ever come across a line of foot soldiers who did not at once break in face of a charge of cavalry. Before long, the Norman right was in a state of collapse, but Beaumont and the left flank wheeled to the rescue, attacking with a detachment of crossbowmen. The few Varingians who survived fled the field. Alexius fought bravely in the centre, but the cream of the Byzantine army had been destroyed at Manzikert, and the forces available had neither discipline nor devotion to prevail against the Normans. The last draw came when he saw that he had been betrayed by his vassal, the Serbian king, and a whole regiment of Turkish auxiliaries. Weak from exhaustion and loss of blood, Alexius escaped from the battlefield. It still took four months after the battle for Giscard to finally take Dyrrachium, but once this was achieved, his troops were able to take the rest of Illyria within a few weeks. Having accomplished this feat, he received an urgent message from Gregory. Henry was at the gates of Rome, and the Norman warriors were urgently needed. With Giscard otherwise occupied, King Henry IV had taken the opportunity to lead an army into Italy in 1081, with his rival Pope Clement III in tow. Since late 1082, they had laid siege to Rome, and in early May of the next year, Imperial troops succeeded in scaling the walls and swept into the city. Gregory hurried to the fortress of Castel San Angelo, where he barricaded himself in and prepared for a new siege. For months, Henry attempted to negotiate an agreement, trying to persuade the Romans to accept Clement III as Pope, who would then acclaim Henry as Emperor. Many accepted, but while a hard court of resistance held out, there would always be doubts on the legitimacy of such a move. Gregory and his supporters held out for several more months, their only hope of rescue being Robert Giscard. One size fits all seemed like a good idea for clothes. Nice dress. Uh, it's a it's a t-shirt. Until you tried it on. Same goes for your health care. 
That's why United Healthcare offers a variety of flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. So whether you're between jobs, coming off a parent's plan, or even missed open enrollment, you can find the plan that fits you best. Find out more about United Healthcare coverage at uh1.com. That's uh1.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wegovy and Zepbound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com/weightloss. That's plushcare.com/weightloss. plushcare.com/weightloss. In March 1084, with the Normans still yet to appear, the Romans eventually gave in. Gregory was formally deposed and Clement consecrated as his successor. One of the first acts of the new pope was to crown Henry as emperor. Robert Guiscard, having left Beaumont in charge of the campaign in Illyria, had returned to Italy earlier, but had been forced to put down rebellion in Apulia. A few days after the coronation, he led an army to Rome. By the time he arrived, Henry had already departed, but the Normans still had to defeat the local supporters of the king. It did not take them long to avail. They released the Pope from his fortress and bore him back in triumph to the Lateran. The situation was a great opportunity for Guiscard's men, including a regiment of Sicilian Saracens for plunder, which they endeavoured to make the most of. The whole capital was given over to scenes of rape and pillage, a disaster unparalleled for the city since the barbarian invasions six centuries before. After three days, the Romans fought back and evicted the Normans, but not before their oppressors had set fire to the city. Churches, palaces and ancient temples came crashing down before the advancing flames. In the whole area between the Colosseum and the Lateran, hardly a single building escaped the inferno, and many of the inhabitants perished in their dwellings. Others, fleeing for their lives, were cut down by Normans as they ran, whereas were captured and sold into slavery. During his pontificate, Gregory had suffered many humiliations, but the greatest of all had been saved to last. When the Normans left Rome, he would have to leave with them, to avoid being lynched by an angry Roman mob. His persistent refusal to compromise had led to his downfall. The next year he died in exile, a broken man, yes, but one who had gone a long way to establishing papal supremacy over the hierarchy of the church. And in its relations with kings and emperors, the church had shown its teeth. Future orders would defy her at their peril. Robert Guiscard died less than two months later of a fever while on campaign on the island of Cephalonia at the height of his powers. He left a powerful legacy, having done more than anyone else to reshape Italy to the advantage of the Normans. His sons would go on to further that legacy, in particular Bohemond, who became a key figure in the First Crusade. In the meantime, Clement III returned to reoccupy St Peter's, 
from where he commanded a significant following in both Rome and beyond. The remaining supporters of Gregory in exile, however, refused to recognise Clement and ran their own election, acclaiming Victor III in 1086. A year after the end of Victor's short reign in March 1088, Pope Urban II was elected at a small meeting of cardinals and other prelates held in Terracina, a small town south of Rome. Born Otto de Lagari, Urban had been one of the most prominent and active supporters of Gregory's reforms, especially as legate in Germany in 1084, and was among the few whom Gregory VII nominated as a potential successor. From a position of considerable weakness in relation to Clement, Urban gradually accumulated authority by virtue of skilful diplomacy. There was therefore a period with two rival popes, each separately issuing communications around Europe and confirming clerical appointments. At first it was Clement III who enjoyed the greater prestige, with the support of both Henry IV and the city of Rome. Where Urban did have an advantage over his rival was in his relationship with the Eastern Church. Since the Great Schism of 1054, the animosity between East and West had grown. Gregory VII had excommunicated Emperor Alexius, supposedly for usurpation, but in truth to help legitimise Robert Guiscard's fight against Byzantium in Illyria. He went as far as to endorse Giscard as the legitimate candidate for the throne of Constantinople itself, even though the Norman had neither a genuine claim nor a realistic chance of installing himself as emperor. The reason for the building of relations between Urban and Alexius was the precarious situation in which both found themselves. According to the historian Peter Frankopan, in his book on the First Crusade, Urban was keenly aware that he was being outmanoeuvred by Clement III and his protector, Henry IV, so he was forced to build bridges where he could. One of his first acts as Pope was to send a small delegation to Constantinople to discuss the sensitive topics that had provoked their falling out. Alexius, likewise, was in urgent need of allies. To his east, the Turks had overrun Asia Minor, while in the west, in the Balkans, the Normans were occupying Byzantine land, and separately a tribe of steppe nomads called the Pechenegs were invading from the north. So he urged Urban to put an end to the disputes which had been so damaging in the past, with the ultimate hope of reuniting the church. Urban reacted quickly, travelling south to meet one of the few allies of Alexius in Italy, Roger of Sicily to seek his approval for improving links with Byzantium. Roger, concerned about the German Emperor's designs on both Italy and Constantinople, readily agreed. So in 1091, Urban was able to provide to Alexius a regiment of men to help fend off attacks from the Pechenegs. In part, thanks to this military assistance, the Byzantines were able to annihilate this fearsome tribe in the Battle of Leberunian, a victory crucial to the survival of Constantinople at one of its times of greatest danger. 
by pursuing reconciliation with Constantinople, Urban deliberately positioned himself as leader of the Christian world, which had been ravaged by years of intense struggle. But the improvement in relations with Constantinople was not enough to have any wider meaning when it came to the rivalry with Clement in Rome. In the mid-1090s, however, the situation began to change. Urban was boosted by high-profile detections from Henry's camp, including Henry's beautiful young wife, who complained of mistreatment. More important still was Conrad, Henry's son and heir, who, unsettled by doubts about his prospects as, as a result of imperial military setbacks in northern Italy, had decided to renounce his father. In March 1095, Urban made his big move. He held a council in Piacenza, in the heart of territory previously loyal to Henry, where he fiercely condemned Clement as an anti-pope, and offered an amnesty to all clergy who had previously sided with the emperor. Conrad swore an oath to protect Urban, who in return promised to recognise Conrad's claim to the imperial throne, and organised a marriage between his new ally and the daughter of Count Roger of Sicily. Urban was now transformed from an isolated figure camped outside the walls of Rome to a figure of central importance in the politics of Europe. Weeks later, another event occurred in Piacenza that would further yet more the fortunes of Urban and also help shape the role of the papacy throughout the Middle Ages. Envoys arrived from Constantinople, bringing news that the Byzantine Empire was on the point of collapse, and help was urgently needed. Urban promptly seized the opportunity by announcing he would make a call to arms. He would tour Europe to drum up support for an army to go to the east and recover land lost by Christians to the heathens. An important motivation for the call to crusade, among others, was one pope's need to consolidate his position vis-à-vis a rival claimant to be head of the church. Eight months later, at Clermont, in central France, Urban made a stirring appeal to rouse the people of the West to arms. The main goal was to be Jerusalem, but at the same time he had hopes of restoring the old bonds between Eastern and Western Christians, perhaps ultimately to restore all former Christian lands to the Catholic faith. The request from Alexius followed a well-established tradition. Foreign soldiers had been a common sight in Byzantine armies, and it is likely he expected no more than a more systematic recruitment, aiming his request at the Pope because he rightly discerned him the most prominent leader in the West. Not only was the volume of volunteers far greater than Alexius had ever imagined, or probably ever wished for, but the recruitment was anything but systematic. Several armed groups formed in the West, especially in France and Italy, which over the next couple of years separately made their way eastwards across Europe. Thus began the First Crusade, the story of which I will continue in next week's podcast. If you are not already aware, there's an excellent podcast dedicated just to the Crusades. If you'd like to know more about the Crusades in more detail than I have time to go into, I would highly recommend 
Sharon Easter's History of the Crusades podcast. To say it's very good would be an understatement. As for History of Europe, Key Battles, the Facebook site for this podcast has started well, with nearly 300 likes already. If not already done, please give it a like to keep up to date with announcements and to see extra material related to the battles covered. Until next time, thank you for listening to A History of Europe, Key Battles. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. 